This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, Tank Girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by MediaTek. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joie, and today is Thursday, July 13th, 2023, and I have a bunch of guests this week. I have Finbar Monihan and Ephraim Shamali here of MediaTek. And later on, we will have Daniel Bader joining us as well for the news and the phone stuff. But welcome, folks. Thanks for being on the show. Good to be here. Always good to be with you, Miriam. Fantastic. So you folks are at MediaTek and you made an announcement at Computex that I thought was very interesting around your partnership with NVIDIA for automotive compute, basically. And so I wanted to kind of touch on that because, as you know, I cover EVs and car tech as well as mobile tech. And uh, the audience here kind of enjoys the coverage as well. And I'd love to see kind of where, you know, where you're going with this automotive partnership with NVIDIA and, you know, what you expect to get out of it, why are you think things are going in general. You know, there's a lot of debates that I think we can relate to for our audience here. Things like General Motors wanting to drop Android Auto and CarPlay, which is obviously a, a very big issue. The, the other big one is the NACS standard for North American charging, which I know is not really in the wheelhouse since we're talking more infotainment and ADAS here. But those are some of the things that we've been seeing in the uh, kind of car tech world lately. So walk us through really quickly at a high level of what this partnership entails and, you know, what you're bringing to the table, what NVIDIA brings to the table and what it, uh, what you hope to achieve with it. All right, I can get started. So this is Ephraim. And basically, MediaTek has been in the automotive chipset business way back since, uh, what is it, 2015. We had our first chip out in 2017, and we've been in the automotive business just delivering what would have been referred to as an IVI chipset. And then, of course, we have our 4G and 5G modems for telematics. Now, given where the automotive industry is going with the combination of the IVI, the cockpit, the ADAS, as well as connectivity, between the two companies at MediaTek and NVIDIA, we have actually complementary product roadmap. We have complementary skill sets. So between the two companies, we're able to provide the car OEMs as well as the tier one with a complete solution as they need it. So we'll have a bunch of different offering for them, but it is a complete offering and they can pick and choose what they want from the combined companies. Okay, so you're looking at basically covering the entire infotainment side, the entire ADAS side. Is there anything that you feel like could benefit the car industry from the partnership beyond, you know, those two items? Like, obviously, those are table six these days, right? Yeah, of course. So, of course, on top of all of that hardware that uh, we just talked about, there's a whole slew of software that goes on top of it. And that's where the automotive industry is spending a lot of time and effort to build up the software that goes on top of it from the software running in the vehicle to software running on the edge to software running back on the servers in the back end. And the combination of the two companies, as you know, NVIDIA is very strong in AI. They're very strong in server technology, while we are very strong on the edge and in the local compute. So that whole combination with the software layers running on top of it, connected through the 5G modems, that gives the car OEM the opportunity 
to create new services without investing on the whole stack from scratch, hardware, mid-layer, top layers, and applications. We'll be able to enable them up to a certain level of the stack, and then they can build the application and the services on top of it. Okay, so it should basically provide a simplified solution for car manufacturers then, basically, is what you're looking at doing here by integrating the strengths of the two companies. NVIDIA is obviously best known for its GPUs, right? And for its GPUs used for AI and, you know, GPUs, I'm being very broad here, not just graphics. You folks are very strong on AI as well. How, how do you plan to make this work? So, yeah, that is one of the key areas for the partnership, right? You stated it correctly, that we both have a GPU for both graphics and AI, right? But the when we talk generically GPU and AI, there are very specific requirements, for example, for ADAS, you know, what that's one example, versus the in-cabin artificial intelligence experience, right? So NVIDIA comes at it more from the ADAS part yeah, of it. That's right. They come to it from the end-to-end connectivity, while MediaTek, we come at it more from local compute, right? So the combination will be able to help in both areas. And in this case, we're actually using the NVIDIA GPU in our chipsets. So we'll be using our CPU, the ARM CPUs, with the NVIDIA uh, GPUs to create that in-cabin experience. Just to add to what, what Ephraim was saying, this is Fenbar. Um, you know, you know MediaTek very well, right? I mean, I think our strength in low-power compute from the mobile space, you know, particularly the last couple of years with our efforts in flagship, you know, when we look at the the trends that are happening in the, you know, solutions for in-cabin cockpit solutions for the car is all very, very relevant. But I think the other piece that sometimes is forgotten is MediaTek strength in the TV and in the home space in terms of driving screens and LCD panels and, and video and picture quality. Again, as we look at the car architectures of the future, you know, all very, very relevant technology that we can also bring to bear in these solutions for the automotive going, going forward. No, it absolutely makes sense to me. I mean, you know, if you look at the best infotainment systems today, like Tesla, Rivian, yeah, it's all about responsiveness. It's all about you know, connectivity, right? 5G, you guys have modems, you have the expertise, you have the Wi-Fi, you have Bluetooth, you have, you know, RFID capabilities and, you know, probably adding vehicle to vehicle capabilities through other standards that are ratified already, uh, like, you know, vehicle to uh, infrastructure as well, like Mercedes has in their cars already uh, with talking to the traffic lights. Um, The first time I saw that in San Francisco on a car I was reviewing, I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. There's a countdown on the screen telling me when the light's gonna change. And this is a light that didn't have the, you know, pedestrian timer on it. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it's completely seamless to the user, right? But back to MediaTek, I mean, to me, you've clearly been able to provide delightful experiences through your partners with manufacturers on the tablet and phone side. I have no doubts that you can do that in the car or for the for the passengers and drivers. That's much needed, to be honest with you. Nobody's doing it that well yet, unfortunately. And a lot of it is software, but I still also feel that the, you know, the integration and your expertise kind of walking through, guiding them through how to do this properly, the media tech side of thing is going to be essential for the user experience because, you, you know, it's harder to do smooth software when you don't have extra overhead, right? And you guys provide so much compute overhead that, you know, even if they're not that good at software, it's still going to be relatively smooth. And then hopefully they can learn and optimize and improve, right? 
And as the car ages, you know, that software will be more efficient, hopefully, and the, the user experience will continue to thrive, right? So, you know, the other thing that I think is really interesting to me from what you're, you're saying is obviously NVIDIA's expertise in the kind of like more in the weeds, as it were, like the, the actual ADAS, you know, aspects that are much more specific, uh, computer vision problems that are very, very, you know, uh, centered around driving. And obviously they can bring a lot to the table there. They have some relatively efficient processing you know, chipsets for that as well. And you guys bring efficiency. And I think that's the thing that's not being talked about right now much in the car space. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit because I feel like as we're moving forward in electrification, right, with the cars, the EVs, we're looking at power consumption being critical, right? Every system in the car has to be efficient. It's not just, you know, we can throw a big computer in there and it doesn't matter and you can play, you know, video games on your Tesla screen. You know, you really still need essentially a mobile chipset of some kind. That That's like that level of efficiency because otherwise you're going to start drawing, you know, idle battery power when you're stopped and, you know, and, and taking a break, or if you, even if you're charging, you're, you're already imposing a bit of a load on this, on the grid for the AC stuff, not even the charging of the battery, but never mind, you know, whatever infotainment you're consuming at the time. So I think that's another area that's going to become more and more critical as a lot of the car companies are trying to become carbon neutral. Right. And I think you're bringing that to the table, right? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Miriam. Uh, low power, most people, as you stated, think I have a big battery, whether it's an EV, which is a huge battery, or a regular car. When you come from the mobile space, you think, ah, it's a big battery, it's not a problem. But think about this car that's sitting at the airport for a month, right? So you go on, on a trip, you have the car sitting there, you come back, the key is in your pocket or your purse, you walk up to the car, you need to touch the door handle, open the open the door, unlock the car, set, start the IVI. So you have to have full power. And typically we look at the use case for a car that's sitting in a parking lot for a whole month. And that's where uh, power management becomes extremely critical in a car. The second one, and you also talked about it, is the BEV, the battery electric vehicle, right? Now, when we look at the car, this car has 300 miles range, 320, 350, right? So every single mile is going to be seen by the user. So that's, right. again, one more place where these HPC high-power compute have to be, be extremely efficient because the end consumer is going to see that mileage per charge. And every mile will make a difference and competition is out there. If there's a car that does 335, one that does 330, but from a consumer perspective, ah, this one is better than the other one, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So power management Absolutely. is extremely critical in the automotive business. As you know, Mariam, like MediaTek also has our, you know, RichTech, our power management subsidiary. So they already have a, you know, a strong starting point in solutions for automotive. And I think that business is only going to grow because of all of the stuff that Ephraim was talking about, right? Like beyond even the, you know, smart cabin cockpit solutions we're talking about, but all through the electrification architecture of the car, you know, we'll be able to bring some of the power management technology and capabilities to bear on the on, on that for the car makers as well going forward. It's critical. I mean, I've been an EV driver for five years and, you know, when you are uh, using the infotainment more, like the passenger is using the screen and or you're listening to even audio, there are amplifiers in the car, they draw current. That's literally not a 
compute chipset problem. That's just a pure, you know, power amplification problem. Even all of this becomes critical. There is a vehicle out there that's a concept, but it's a working, drivable concept. I've driven it, I've sat in it, I've used it, uh, called the Mercedes EQXX, and it has NVIDIA technology in it. And it has an entire like pillar to pillar uh, micro LED screen, right? And so that's kind of where we're going, right? Um, the, the area in front of the driver is not touch sensitive, but the entire area, I would say the three quarters from like the edge of the steering wheel all the way to, you know, the end of the passenger's area there is touch sensitive. And you know, you can actually see the, this is a very efficient car. It's designed to showcase Mercedes, you know, experience with efficiency from aerodynamics to, you know, all the aspects, rolling resistance, compute, battery tech, motors, whatever. And you can see when they turn on the screen, like fully, how even micro LEDs, you, you can actually see it in the budget. Um, so, you know, compute obviously is many times higher right now, I think for ADAS at least. I think for just application processing in the car, it's fine. But I think it's fascinating to me. And I think the other thing you're, you're not talking about yet, but I think I want to bring to the table here is your expertise in radio because look, our devices are in our pockets, on our wrists, right? Soon on our faces and we wear them and they want to seamlessly integrate with our vehicles, whether they're, you know, vehicles for hire, airplanes, you know, public transit, you know, whatever it might be, or your own car that you um, own and drive, you want that seamless experience. And, you know, still to this day, every other car that I review has issues connecting my phone to the, you know, infotainment system with, you know, CarPlay or Android Auto dropping halfway through my drive or, you know, some kind of glitch setting up Bluetooth. You'd think that by 2023 would have this figured out because on the phone world, we have this figured out, right? Like it took a while, but now any pair of headphones and earbuds just pair seamlessly with your phone. And I think that's kind of another area that you guys bring to the table that, you know, others might not have yet in the car world because it's not an area of expertise for them. I don't think it's an area of expertise for NVIDIA even, right? So, yeah, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, we'd like to provide the customer with a platform, right? Given all the components we just mentioned from connectivity to high-power compute for cockpit, for ADAS, if we create a platform, right, with all the hardware and more importantly, the software to do power management, user experiences, those kind of things, that's how it would be optimized for the end customer, which is the OEM and eventually the consumer, right? There are so many use cases. You mentioned the pillar-to-pillar -pillar display. Granted, yes, you are driving the car and yes, you're going to light up that display. The flip side of it, we mentioned like being at the airport, sentry mode. When does the camera wake up, right? Remember that car could be sitting there for a few days yep. and then the camera still has to be watching. And if there is action, then it wakes up another computer that wakes up another computer that wakes up the modem. You want to do software update. When does the modem wake up to check for software updates, right? So if you're trying to push a software update, the car is asleep, you cannot do that. So think about all the electronic in the car and what wakes up at what time with what performance, right? So that's why the power management in a vehicle is actually quite complex. And that's going to be a competitive edge for some of the OEMs, right? Absolutely. And I think this is an area where you've been doing this on phones at a smaller scale forever, right? Like you have essentially, you know, the same problem when your phone is sitting on your table doing absolutely nothing. It's just 
purely idling overnight. And then all of a sudden, you know, it detects a top on the back of the phone and it wakes up a little bit and then it's ready to fire up the, you know, fingerprint scanner or the camera. And then when it does, the display fires up and the whole thing starts to run, right? All these happen in stages. We don't see that as consumers. It's, you know, instant and seamless. And that's the point. It needs to be instant and seamless. In my Tesla, I don't turn sentry mode on very often because especially on longer term situations when I'm not charging, it does use a lot of energy because they're not, even they, the kind of, I would say, leaders right now in that field are having trouble managing power on that aspect. So, you know, I'd love to have my sentry on all the time and not worry about it consuming anything when I'm at the airport, but that's not where we're at right now. And if you guys can bring that to the table, I'm on board. that's the plan that's exactly what we're working on is to be able to bring all of that experience from as Finbar mentioned from the home in multimedia in TVs in smart speakers into the car with low power management in the mobile space you know 5G chipsets CV2X you gave the example where you have that modem on all the time when you approach a red light more importantly you gave a good example where you can see when the red light is going to turn red for example can you imagine if you have a city that is managing a whole bunch of cars coming into inter- intersection so it'll be pinging all these cars saying where are you where are you where are you and then they can manage the traffic within let's say a 5 mile radius right? And that can tell you what speed to go so you can skip the red light, right? So this is the kind of technology that we need to provide uh, to the the application services, right? While maintaining that low power that we just talked about, right? The use cases really abound and it's going to become like the smartphone, you know, more application, more power, and then we have to keep reducing the power and the power consumption while increasing all the different use cases that we just discussed. Great. Well, on that note, we should wrap up this segment. Thank you both for being my guests on this and discussing, I think, an area that doesn't get talked about very much. People just assume that magically electric cars and other non-electric cars that are using ADAS and infotainment just kind of happen. And they kind of wonder when the experience isn't that great, why is what's going on? And of course they say, well, the car makers don't know how to make software, but it takes a lot more than that. And I think this is what this partnership shows and hopefully we'll deliver, right? That's the plan for sure. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll have we'll have more to talk about later with this this partnership, Miriam. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for both being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. And we're back, folks. I've got Daniel Bader here of Android Police and a whole bunch of other Valnet properties. Hi. Hi. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm very well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to have you back. It's been like, I looked like, you know, I've been doing this podcast for so long now, like since 17 or something that I I like sometimes don't have guests for two years and it just seems like I had them yesterday. And that's exactly what happened here. It's funny. You have, um, you have what I consider to be like the all-star rotation of, of, uh, podcast guests. Like it's the only (laughs) tech podcast I, I listen to where I, I basically know every single guest that comes on your show because you get everybody. So it's an honor to be back. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You know, I try to introduce new folks as I meet new folks and get a feel for what, you know, they're like, because obviously some people are not going to be as well versed as others, but you don't really need much to be on the show in the sense that I want you to just have an opinion. Like a lot of my guests sometimes say, oh, I don't have that phone. I'm like, dude, 
don't worry about it. Just read up a couple of articles on it. And you've handled enough phones that you could probably make a snap decision that's going to be absolutely accurate and yours and trustworthy. And that's that's yeah. the whole point. So speaking of which, you don't have the Nothing Phone 2, which I just reviewed, but you have, I'm sure your head is swimming with opinions. So I'm actually going to let you start because I kind of want to know what's your thoughts on this? What's your gut feeling on it? I, I think the the one word that I have is opinionated. This is a company <laughs> that's run by Carl Pei. It's a man who does not shy away from speaking his own mind in the media. He had a, I would say, like difference of opinion with uh, Pete Lau, one of the reasons he left Oppo or OnePlus. I think it makes sense that this phone is sort of the fruition of everything he's learned over the years at OnePlus put into uh, a design that that he stands behind 100%. This phone feels like the sum of far more than its specs. I think nothing did a an admirable job with the resources it had. $50 million is not a lot of money to develop no. and produce a phone in the first generation. And now that it is, it's raised more money, I think people know the brand more. They've had successes with their accessories. It's not quite a brand name in most households yet, but it's getting to the point where early adopters are thinking about nothing as what OnePlus was in 2014, except that it's better leveraged. It's run by people that have better design ethoses, right? Like if you recall the early days of OnePlus, it was basically running CyanogenMod, which it did not have any real software design opinion. So I think taking what we have now, which in 2023 means turnkey hardware is just so much better than it was a decade ago. 100%. Plus opinionated software. You could put all the specs aside and look at this as a really, I, I think, impressive piece of um, hardware, but also just a, an impressive release in general. They've done a good job with the hype cycle. They've done a good job getting people interested in the brand. And then the final product, instead of disappointing, ends up being better than most people thought it would be. So from that perspective, I think nothing nailed it on all accounts. and keeping the phone not at the same price it was in the beginning, like with the Nothing Phone 1, which didn't come to the US, but 399 euro is, I think, quite a, an attractive price. You're looking at a very decent uh, mid-range phone that punches above its weight, you know, if you'll excuse the, if you excuse the, the expression. So yeah, I think, you know, Carl Pay should be proud of this as just a like from beginning to end holistic release. And I do hope that because it's coming to the US officially, it has uh, FCC approval, all that good stuff, it will actually get the recognition that it needs to. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you. This is the thing, right? I think you just nailed it. In fact, my conclusion in my review on hot hardware, I said, copy and the rest of the team should be proud because, you know, I've worked on that other side, uh, the non-media side, the side that, creates and makes products, right? When I was at Pebble, it's so difficult to make hardware. And of course, you're going to say today it's a lot easier because, you know, anyone can basically make a phone because Shenzhen has all kinds of ODMs and whatever. But the reality is they nailed it. And it's not 
you know, the way I look at it, there's kind of two camps here. Superficially, and I said that in my conclusion, you can be kind of cynical and say, ah, this is just another bar phone with some fancy light show on the back, right? At the core, you're not wrong. You know, they are cutting corners. There's a Snapdragon 8 Plus Gen 1, not a Gen, you know, Gen 2 chip, right? So there are things that you could just poke at. But if you actually use the phone, it's so delightful. It's all the little details. It's all the little stuff that adds up. And it just feels like a very thoroughly thought out product to the point where I'd say like it it competes with what Apple delivers. It competes with what Tesla delivers, that super tight vertical integration. And I hate to say this, Samsung doesn't have that. Like mm-hmm. Samsung has an ecosystem for sure, but you don't get that delight. You don't get that that kind of whimsical coolness, that fun factor. And you know, copy and all these videos we talk about fun. And you know, at first I kind of rolled my eyes because you and I have been doing this for so long, right? Like, you know, it's easy to just kind of like, oh yeah, another marketing, you know, BS. But it is so fun to use this phone. And it doesn't wear out. Like I think that you can use this phone and ignore the glyph interface and still have a phenomenally good kind of affordable flagship, right? Like last year's Phone One, everything is perfectly well-balanced. They've measured it all right, and it just lines up perfectly. The camera is like OnePlus 11 good. That's good. That's not like the OnePlus we used to know. That's like up there touching on the edge of like Pixel, Samsung, Apple, right? Now, it's not quite there, but it's good enough that 90% of the people out there will be happy. It's definitely better than Moto, in my opinion, which is much better than it was with the latest phones, like even the Razer Plus, but still not quite there. So then you look at the processor, the performance, the way the software is optimized. It feels like a OnePlus or, you know, like one of those really well thought out, you know, efficient, well optimized OSs running on a fo- on an Android phone. and you look at everything else. The build quality is off the charts. The material quality, like that thing feels like it should be $200 more just in your hand. And so you look at all that and then you look at the software. And, they, you know, as you said, I think it's not the hardware. It's actually the software. The software is so awesome on this. You have so many little touches that are very stock Android Plus that are making this phone delightful. So, you know... That's one view. One view is you can ignore the glyph, right? You can be just like, this is, I'm buying a really good mid-range or not even mid-range at this point, like affordable flagship or premium mid-range phone. And you're competing with Pixel 7a, Pixel 7, you're competing with OnePlus 11, which are all in the same price. I had to research this for my review. They're all discounted right now. So some of them are even as low as 449 for the 7a. And interestingly, I had the 7A arrive at the same time. So I used them side by side. I took the exact same pictures with both phones and everything. And yeah, it's a tough call because you're saving, you know, $150 with the 7A. But the 7A feels, it just feels familiar and it's solid, but it doesn't have that delight. It doesn't have that fun. It doesn't have that special something, right? And that if that's what you're looking for, I think nothing is doing it right. And honestly, their earbuds are tops. I really love their earbuds. I've made the Ear 2 my kind of main go-around-town earbud for a few weeks or months now. And together with a Phone 2, the integration is so seamless. It feels like an Apple product. And on top of that, you get that LHDC codec, which is like LDAC and sounds immediately the earbuds sound better to train ears like mine. And, you know, I don't get that 
uh, enjoyment with my Pixel and the Year 2s because my Pixel doesn't support uh, LHDC and they don't support LDAC. So, you know, I could go on. You get it, right? <laughs> it's just good. I think what's what's interesting here is the year-over-year improvement in general. You know, you look at one OnePlus... I mean, I keep going back to OnePlus because Carl- You have to. Was instrumental in the growth of that company. And the, the OnePlus One was an impressive product. It cost $299. They lost money on that, obviously. The OnePlus Two was significantly better, but it didn't really hit, it, for me at least, until the OnePlus Three and 3T. Correct. Right? That was the year that I felt OnePlus hit its stride. The year-over-year, the, the, the scale of the year-over-year improvement here is dramatic. Right, and it's I'm not incredible. just talking about the Nothing Phone one to the two. I'm talking about the ear, the the the, the earbuds as well. Right, the ear, the first pair of earbuds was fine. They were they were decent. The second pair widely praised. The ear stick, again, an opinionated product. Similar. So you talk about Samsung like not taking chances. The only product I think Samsung has really taken a chance with in the last few years is the Galaxy Buds Live. Those yep. like the the beans were weird and wonderful. And I liked them because of that. And Samsung just is not the company to do it anymore. And it feels like OnePlus is not the company that's doing that anymore. Nope. So nothing is picking up the mantle and like running with that opportunity. You talk about whimsy. Whimsy can break a product. It can oh, yeah. ruin a product if it's overdone, you know? But this feels like it's the right balance of opinionated design with these small touches that delight you in a way that like early smartphones did. Uh, HTC comes to mind, right? The This is the 10 year anniversary of the uh, HTC One. And, and it's to me like that phone was full of lovely design touches. That is Even exactly going back right. a year before to the HTC One X and One S, that series of devices never, never stopped delighting me in spite of their hardware issues. And I feel like we're now back at that point where we have small companies coming in and trying to disrupt the status quo because certainly Apple and Samsung are not going to do it to themselves. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an incredibly thoroughly thought out device. And I cannot believe it's from a startup. I, I, don't, I, I mean, it's just mind blowing. The phone one, I spent a week with it during IFA. I borrowed Jaime's for a week and I got a pretty, you know, exciting experience with it but it wasn't like oh my god right this thing starts kind of slow and then you every time you do something else you discover another feature and you're like oh my god this is so cool and it doesn't wear out you're like you know i'm about three weeks in now and i'm still using it it's uh, my second phone in my second pocket for my canadian sim since i'm in vancouver right now mm -hmm. and my pixel is my u.s sim in my other pocket and you know it's like they did something right. And then the other thing, I think, you know, on top of that, you get this glyph interface. And if you want to use it, it actually brings some cool stuff to the table. Now it's not just as gimmicky as before. It actually brings some features that are helpful to the table, like, you know, uh, progress bars. So progress bar for volume, right? Like you can change your volume and your earbuds and have the phone lying flat on your table and see what the volume change is. You can you know, they have an API developers can use to integrate with other apps. They have Uber integration right now. So if you catch uh, Uber, you can see the progress of how far it is from you on the back, but just having your phone down. Um, you have timers, like I use Pomodoro method for my work a lot. So 
great for that. Um, just a visual at a glance kind of thing. You can also have the phone automatically mute when you put it face down so that you only see the glyphs and you don't get as distracted. So if you want to, with a few little clicks and taps on the interface, you can customize a new user experience for yourself that is a little more intentional, a little more focused, a little less screen time, right? And of course, we know we all struggle with this. I'm, I'm really bad at it. I think we all are. Um, I'm so set in my ways, like, you know, it's kind of hard for me to try these new things because I'm so set in my ways, but I did. And I was like, yeah, this is totally, I could see me using some of that. You know, another thing, and I, this is a like, again, like subset here, but I have a Tesla and it has Tesla integration right in the quick settings. So I, I don't even have to install the Tesla app. I can That's log so into my Tesla account in the nothing interface and see like pop my frunk open, turn on my climate control remotely you know, do whatever, unlock the car, honk the horn, all that stuff that I can do in the Tesla app, I can do right. Like the Talk basic about stuff, knowing your audience. I know. And I'm saying like, you know, I'm like, you know, one percenter here. I bet you of all the reviewers <laughs> that have a phone too, there's like 10 of us with a Tesla, right? But the point stands that they clearly thought this out and, you know, they have a third party API for this. Now, you know, as well as I do, that third-party APIs on Android phones never get the traction, right? You, you mm -hmm. know, on, it takes years for the stuff to come back into Android and get rolled in. But, you know, if I was at a Google right now working on Android 15, right, I'd be looking at this and going, hey, the EVs are becoming a thing out there. Why don't we create an API that any EV manufacturer can use with their app with their ecosystem that gives you control of things that are table stakes on EVs, things that you can turn your climate on before you get in the car uh, while you're, you know, charging or whatever it might be. Things that people who drive gas cars are not familiar with, you know, popping your frunk because you have a front trunk. It's called the frunk, you know, stuff like that. So I think this is kind of innovating in ways I didn't expect. Like I never thought for a second that having quick settings for my Tesla would just be like a game changer, but it is because I don't have to install the app or run the app, but I can. And right now, the way I do this is there's a permanent notification, my app tray in my notification that says, hey, do you want to do anything with your Tesla? And so I have to unlock my phone, go to my notification shade, drop it down and then click on the little shortcuts that appear there. It's such a cumbersome thing compared to this, just, you know, even like with face unlock, you can just look at it and your quick settings, you're done. So little things that delight again. Um, but ultimately the, the hardware, the software, everything is solid. There's very few bugs. Um, if the few I ran into have, been fixed in a new version that just came out yesterday, ironically, after my review. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were minor things like screen brightness issues, uh, auto brightness stuff. And then, you know, the, the hardware is just like everything works. And I'm thinking to myself, if you don't want to go to a folding phone, right? If you don't want to be like different by going to a folding phone, this is the phone for you because you don't have to use the Glyph. But the glyphs don't really add extra cost to you to your wallet because $599 for this phone, right? That's the other thing we need to talk about. What's your take on that? Well, it's interesting, right? Like, I think the number of decent value devices in the US is is increasing. A few years ago, there was a, a pretty big gulf between the Samsung, you know, A and K series entry-level shit and the really good stuff. And until the Pixel A series established itself, 
and force the hand of a lot of the the competitors, um, we didn't have a lot of great options. And I think the Pixel A series is interesting because now we have the 6A at 349 permanently, and then the 7A at 499. And I mean, during Prime Day, the Pixel 6A was 250. Like, if I were to tell my mom who doesn't want an iPhone to buy any Android phone right now, it would have been the 6A at 250, right? Like, that's just a good deal. Um, don't need a lot more than that. I think, does this provide, and I'll, I'll, I mean, maybe I'll throw it back at you. I think the price makes sense. Yeah. It's not going to be subsidized in any carrier, which might be problematic, but I still think there are a lot of people in the US that buy phones unlocked. And, and in that Canada, we, we cross the border all the time, don't we? <laughs> oh yeah, 100%. I mean, so yeah, no, I, you're throwing it back and I agree. Like, I think for me, this is a really solid price point. I thought during my briefing, they asked me, they said, hey, what do you think the price is after they briefed me? And I said, 599 And Jane, the PR lady was like, smile. And she goes, yep, you nailed it. And I'm like, I think this comes from our experience, right? But you, you guess tell, the price? I guess the price correctly, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, because you know what? I knew that they couldn't go, like it's a, still an increase in price over phone one. But when you look at what they're doing, you know, it's, I knew it was going to be aggressive, but also knew it had to pay the bills, right? Like, and I looked at it and I'm like, okay, how low can they go reasonably? And I'm thinking to myself, got to be around 600. So, you know, uh, but here, look, this gives you an 8128. Honestly, I've got the 12256. I'd spend the extra hundred bucks on that, right? Because the storage, the storage, like 128, you're going to go through that no matter what you're doing, right? Very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, but, but so it, it's a bit of a hidden cost, right? But, and then the Pixel 7, if you really want the best value, the Pixel 7a, like the 7a, even the 7, I mean, $50 more gets you that better depth of field in the camera. Like go for that. If you want a slightly better camera, if like camera is the thing, but 449 right now, even as you said, the 6a last year's, right? Like those phones are unbelievable, but you notice it's only Google, right? Apple has the SE3 at 500-ish, and you have the A-series, but as soon as you go into A-series, I'm sorry, you're no longer in flagship territory because you, you no longer have a flagship chipset. Even though it's an older flagship chipset on phone 2 and on 6A, it is still, to me, like even the 6A doesn't quite hit all the corners because it doesn't no, have wireless right. charging. But the it 7A doesn't. to me, I'm sorry, that's an affordable flagship. You cannot mm -hmm. argue with that. It has every little spec you need for a flagship, like an, not you know missing shirt telephoto and stuff, but that's, that's like high-end flagship. That's like the other end of the spectrum, right? So to me, 7A is an outlier. I think that if you, like the A series doesn't compete. I'm sorry, when people compare an A series to the 7A, I'm like, what are you talking about? Exynos chip and like, you know, no wireless charging. And yeah, there are some redeeming and qualities. Plastic. Yeah, I mean, and the, plastic. the 7A is plastic too, but it's- Plastic back that feels like glass. It still has the metal frame. It has the metal frame. Gives it that nice, heavy premium vibe to it. Honestly, I can live with that. But I'd, I'd rather take wireless charging and have a plastic back than a glass back with no wireless charging like the OnePlus 11. <clears throat> Hello, Oppo, <laughs> get your the ducks lined up, please. Again and again, this this is just- can't go wrong here. Maybe before before we move on, I just want to know your opinion. Like, what's the best way for nothing to market this device? Because I think it's tricky today, right? The market is so saturated. A lot of people have made their 
decisions on basically two two uh, companies, Apple or Samsung. There's a couple of Motorola's, a couple of, of, of OnePlus's, but ultimately like the market is very saturated. How does nothing steal customers away from existing Apple and Samsung users or even other Android OEMs? Like what's their strategy here? I think this is not about selling phones per se. It's more about creating a brand. Because look, until you get the carriers in play, at least on this market, in, in our markets, Canada and the US, you're not going to go anywhere. They're not going to volume sell this thing at all. It's a niche within a niche. Like the un, I, I, Look, you know me. I buy all my phones unlocked if I ever buy a phone, and I will never go through a carrier. Like I've gone through carriers with iPhones because they don't get any branding, and I know I can unlock them because I've been with my carrier for 20 plus years, and they will unlock them for me after three months when I request it mm-hmm. because I there was a stock issue and it wasn't available from Apple or something, right? That's the only exception I make. I will never buy a phone locked. I will always buy directly from the manufacturer or Best Buy or Amazon or whatever. Whereas a lot of people, that's not even a thing. They need the discounts. They need you know, the trade-ins. They need whatever, right? So you're in a niche already. And then on top of that, you're in a niche who will look at this and go, oh, it's cool and delightful. I've read the reviews. I've listened to Daniel and Miriam, and I'm going to buy this now. Like We're talking about like a fraction of people. But those people are super passionate. Remember OnePlus? Look, Carl is essentially redoing the OnePlus book, right? Right. But he doesn't have Pete slowing him down and messing things up. I'm sorry to say, you know? Like, that's kind of how I feel about it. And maybe I'm wrong. And I'd love to talk to Pete. I've already told him this because I want to understand where he's coming from. You know, maybe he has a different approach here. But the reality is I could see the glimmers. Now, looking back, you know, hindsight is... 2020. But looking back, I could see now that Kape had that vision with the Nord, the original Nord. You look at where the Nord is at now. The Nord 3 just came out. We talked about it last week. Yawn. You know, it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're getting a, essentially a flagship, Dimensity 9000, IMX 890, same camera as the Nothing Phone 2. You know, you're getting a beautiful phone with an alert slider. But, you know, things like plastic frame, no wireless charge. And you start going down, you know, it starts to roll down the hill and kind of not make much sense. Whereas you looked at the original Nord, like remember back then, I mean, even today, so few Chinese phones have 4K video recording in the front, right? Now, granted, nothing Phone 2 does not have 4K video recording in the front camera, which is the only two negative points I put in my two negatives, two cons. Was That was one of them. The other one was no charger in the box. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you're going to ship a phone with 45 watt charging PPS, give me a PPS charger of some kind. How much more money can that be? Uh, I know environmental concerns and, you know, he's based in Sweden and England where that stuff is really a big deal. I get it. But for the US market, it would have been nice to maybe bundle one as an external box or like, you know, anyway, I digress. My point is that, you know, if you look at the landscape out there, you know, these devices are just super niche. And I don't see them selling much, but you're creating a brand. They're creating an experience. And I'm hoping that, you remember when the OnePlus 6T finally came to T-Mobile? That was a thing, right? Right. That was a thing. And they lost that momentum by getting complacent afterwards because they don't have a phone officially right now other than the N series. They don't have the 11 5G as an officially sold by T-Mobile phone, I don't think. At least they don't have a partnership at launch. Maybe now they've picked it up. 
So this is kind of where I see them going, right? I see them going to building this user base, building this fandom and keeping them happy and then eventually becoming carrier approved, carrier sold. Right. <sighs> Getting bought by someone? I don't I don't know what the end game here is because honestly like eventually they're going to dilute the brand. You know how it goes. There's a cycle here. There's a it's it's just a thing, right? But for a little while there, it's going to be awesome. And if you're in that little while, in that timeline, in that moment in time, enjoying the product, you're going to be happy. And that's why I think you should consider this phone. If you don't want a folding phone, if you can live with not the best specs, and if you want to give a company that's new a chance. It's just, it's interesting to me because they're they're taking the VC approach and the VC approach is always an exit, right? Yeah. So it'll get a, it'll get a multiplier valuation and there will be an exit. There have been three major funding rounds already for, for this. And I, I agree with you. I think an exit is the ultimate end goal here. It's just what, what is the value in a, in a, in a, essentially a hardware startup, which we know is very difficult to scale, especially a phone making hardware startup. Um, you're right. They're probably not making money off the phone too. So what is the ultimate goal here? Um, is it is it software? I mean, I think it's we- software because look, I think that's what it is. This is the first phone in a long time that I've seen that really feels like an Apple ecosystem mm-hmm. phone. Like it's an Android phone, but everything is so tightly integrated that it just feels delightful. And and it doesn't play just well with its own ecosystem. It plays well with like Tesla, Uber, but it also plays well with AirPods. It has a setting that lets you see and control all the airport settings right in the phone. You don't, like, it basically gives you the Apple functional of your AirPods, but on an Android phone. Right. Brilliant. Why hasn't anybody done that? Like, so I think that's kind of, like, honestly, the more I use the software, the more I realize that's kind of where they're at. And the Glyph, of course, is just kind of icing on the cake that gives you an outlet for that software, right? So- I mean, it's- it's interesting, like, I'm sure some people don't remember, but nothing acquired the remnants of Essential. Right. You know, that's the, it's, it's IP for sure, but it's, it, again, it goes back to an opinionated design ethos that whether you love the Essential phone or not, it, it stood out. And they're taking that and running with it. And if you recall, you know, Andy Rubin's idea of what Essential would turn into, it was a holistic sort of like hardware, software, smart home, like it would do a little bit of everything. And I wonder if Carl Pay is looking at that going, hmm, okay, that's interesting. How can we make recurring revenue off something? Um, Is it worth creating, say, the Nothing OS blueprint and selling it to Chinese OEMs so that they're not releasing garbage? Um, Or is it something entirely different is it creating an ecosystem of products that they can then sell off as a whole to some bigger company that's not doing so well from an R&D perspective or a design perspective? Um, it's fascinating to me. Or is it simply, and I can relate to this having worked for many startups, Carpe wanting that, that dopamine hit of running a startup for a while. Like that could just be what it is and doing good work in the process. and pushing technology forward in the process by showing us how you can integrate hardware and software 
in Android land better so mm-hmm. that, you know, we have a precedent so that, you know, maybe, and I think honestly, Google has shown that the best so far of all of them and nothing comes along and shows us another angle of that. I can't think of anybody else doing it. As I said, Samsung has an ecosystem that feels like there's no passion, no interest. It's just doing it to copy Apple and to compete with Apple. And that's why it sucks. Well, and there's like, there's the other side of it too, which is that Samsung has become arguably the most conservative tech giant in the world, more so than Apple. Like Samsung takes no chances anymore. If you look at what they're about to announce, if you look at what they did announce, every single product that they've announced in 2023 is the most iterative, like the most iterative possible product that they could have released. Yeah, And that is very, very uh, concerning to me because that wasn't the case eight, nine years ago. I mean, when Moto innovates more than you do in the, in the area that you own, folding phones, you know you have a problem. Yes, <laughs> you know, like, exactly. 100%. Um, that's a good segue for us to quickly talk about other things. And I want to talk about the Samsung Galaxy Z series price rumors. So now these are European prices. So, you know, take them with a grain of salt. It's very possible that Samsung will be willing to quote unquote, take a loss and match the pricing from last year in the US, right? Because the US pricing is always the most critical pricing because the carriers are involved and you get those discounts and you get those trade-ins. What is your gut feeling here? To me, this doesn't look right. It, it might work for Europe, but in North America, they have to be the same or lower, yes? Yes. They will not increase pricing in the US. I, I will bet money on that. It does, not, it does not feel right. I feel like if they increase the price in the EU, it's due to inflation and because of uh, pressures there. Um, but I don't think that they have the same leverage in the US given the way that people buy phones, mostly at carriers, mostly on financing plans divided into monthly chunks. Um, I just don't think that they can they can justify increasing the price right now in the US, especially given the fact that, as I just said, these will be very iterative products. Even the they Z are. Flip 5. Like I'm sure you've talked in in the past with people about the fact that like the Z Flip 5 will match the Motor Razor Plus in terms of its front display. And but we don't know what that display can do yet. We don't know if Samsung's gonna pull an Oppo or they're actually gonna like make it usable like Motorola is. Yeah. I suspect it's pulling an Oppo, Oppo because yeah. Yeah. they're not gonna want people using the phone the way that like Samsung just needs to control the experience more. Um, so from my perspective, that will cause early adopters, people that have a Z Flip two or three to kind of like, nope, I'm fine. I'll hold on to my phone for another year. And if it's a cent more than 999, that's not not a great marketing uh message. And then for the Z Fold 5, like give me a give me a break. Like you have OnePlus launching a, a foldable soon. You have the Pixel Fold. You There's have the more competition. Honor Magic V2. <laughs> which awesome. is great, but not coming to the US. No, no, but I'm saying US. it shows you where we're going, right? Like it's not, it's like mm-hmm. it's so thin that like I need, we need to mention, like it's just, it blows my mind. Like I haven't held one, but mm-hmm. I saw Richard Lai's story on, on Gadget and I'll put it in there as a segue, but I want to come back to the Z's, Galaxy's Z's. Um, but the Honor Magic V2 is the thinnest foldable to date. It's 10, essentially a centimeter closed. That's the same thickness almost as an iPhone 14 Pro Max. It's very impressive. It's 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 great that we have 
I mean, Huawei and Honor making the best foldable hardware right now is is a very strange place to be. Right. Just given the fact that they're so hard to get. Um, and that, you know, with the, the amount of hype that the Pixel Fold had and ultimately failing to live up to it in, in many respects. Yeah. It just feels like once again, we are, you know, we were so hopeful that the US and Canada and like non the non-Chinese market would get access to all these amazing foldables. And that's just not bearing bearing out. It's still gonna be a Samsung game for from what I can tell. I mean, the thing about Honor at least is that you can buy their phones with GMS and you can import them. So, you know, those of you who are super adventurous, this is not mm. gonna be a bad phone to have. The software might not be my cup of tea, but look, you're getting a 8 Gen 2, you're getting the thinnest folding phone, you're getting a pretty solid camera system, triple, you know, it actually has a proper telephoto. Um, it, you're getting uh, 120 hertz displays front and back. You're getting, I mean, that thing is amazing. 5,000 milliamp hour battery in a phone that thin. That's the highest, I think, battery size of any of the Fold book style phones on the market right now. And this goes back to what you were saying about the Z Fold and the Z Flip, right? Like, in, where's the innovation? This thing folds perfectly flat. I mean, I could go on and on. 66 watt charging, no wireless, of course. But look, this thing is dope. Like, if you gave me this spec sheet, I'd be like, who made this? Like, I mean, so... I think this is kind of why I'm so amazed that they would raise the prices on top of that, right? It's like, we kind of know you're going to sit on your laurels and just increment Samsung. So how could you possibly? So I, I kind of put this rumor as yes, in Europe, but no, in the US. And as a segue, go check out the Magic V2 photos and details on this Engadget story by Richard Light, because this thing is kind of kind of dope. I kind of want it. <laughs> to be honest, and it's coming out relatively soon after the magic, like the the first. Um, yeah, well, magic they, they, v. it's their third now. So the magic V and then the VS, yeah, and then now the V two, and this is definitely the, a huge step forward for them. The V and the VS were very similar, but yeah. So you know, to go back to Samsung, I like, yeah, I, I honestly like, and also you know, with OnePlus coming soon with. Uh, the Pixel Fold that has its passport form factor and, and Oppo's done passport style form factor, which I think are way better for a book size fold. I don't like the tall, skinny form factor that Samsung's going with. Like, if Samsung has been doing this the longest, they should have a second flip phone now at $699 for those who, like, a, you know, a mid ranger. Like, it doesn't have to have a Snapdragon 8 Gen 2. Like, that's what Moto's doing with the Razer Non-Plus. Like, yeah. I cannot believe that Moto's doing what Samsung should be doing this late in the game. Fair enough. Although, I will... I'm cautiously optimistic about the phone that I'm calling the Razer Minus because as good as the Razer Plus <laughs> is, I, I, I'm just... I'm worried that they cut a lot of corners to get to that price, that $699 price. And we'll see. I, I'm, I'm, Motorola has had a great year. Is it so, six ninety nine though? Is it? I think it may be six ninety nine euro. I mean, we've seen we've seen the price in India, and it translates to about six ninety nine. So I don't think we have an official price for the U.S. and Canada yet. No, I, I don't think they did. But uh, from what I know, it, it was six ninety nine euro, which is um, incredible. Although, it's, it's basically going to translate to six ninety nine U.S. You know it. So to me, this is progress because look, I can live with a slightly lesser chip. I can live with a 
higher resolution, probably worse camera sensor, 64 megapixel, and a smaller cover display. A lot of people don't care about using the front display. They just want notifications and like the, you know, time and the date and whatever. So that's perfect because I don't know. I think we need that phone. I think, and I think we need that phone from Samsung because they can drive the market and then we can have adoption of flip phones, which I think for a lot of people are going to be super awesome. Yeah. That's all, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, what's, what's just before we move on, I, I just want to say like the resurgence of honor has been really interesting to see, right? They've come back very, very quickly with a lot of high quality products that run GMS and are sold in Europe. And that, while not, it doesn't like make up for the fact that, you know, my Huawei P30 Pro is sitting in my drawer. Like I, I like want to use that phone every day because I loved it so much. Oh, it's so good. Um, and then, you know, it's just like taunting me with what could have been if the embargo didn't happen. It's nice to see Honor, which is essentially still a Huawei company for all intents and purposes. Exactly. Working on building good quality devices with GMS, like as a consumer, that makes me happy. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's hopeful, right? Like we've seen rumors that Huawei might be able to get away with building its own chip that supports 5G, 5G yeah, and the and yeah. re releasing it in the US. I don't think that is going to happen. I don't think the current administration will allow that, but if they can get around some of the restrictions and start releasing products that at least bring it closer to what it used to be, I'm I'm all for it. 100%. Speaking of Chinese phones, OnePlus 12 renders have leaked. Just put that in there because uh, Deep Meh. in my heart, my broken heart, I have a OnePlus fetish and I love them. And I'm, I was really happy with the 11 5G, except mm -hmm. for the lack of wireless charging, which I'm like, how can you sell a phone that's a flagship in North America without wireless charging, you dumb, mm. okay? Mm -hmm. Like, I hate that, repeat that mantra because half of my fans are like, I don't use it, I don't care. But to me, it's table stakes. All cars nowadays have a charger. You know, lots of us have chargers floating around our houses and our night tables. You, you don't realize how much you use it until you don't have it. And on a phone that costs that much, you have to have it. So I hope the 12 has it. But the renders show a folded telephoto, which makes me happy because I really thought the 11 5G's camera system I think, generally speaking, Oppo's imaging pipeline is very solid, and OnePlus has kind of adopted it, and I like what I'm seeing. I like the results. I like the photos. I like the, the quality, and, you know, the Hasselblad branding, whatever, right? But the thing is, so that, that's, that's why I'm excited about this 12 renders. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the Oppo, rent, like, the image rendering pipeline is, is excellent, and I actually think that... The, the 3X telephoto on the Find X6 Pro provides some of the best photos that I've seen on a flagship this year, right? Between the Xiaomi 13 Pro and the Find X6 Pro, like you, you don't get much better than that when it comes to like natural portrait photography, right? 100%. It's, it's, it's an 85-ish millimeter optical lens. The sensors are, are, are enormous. The, the the bokeh is is on point. You can take incredible photos in the in in very challenging lighting conditions with those 
sensors. Um, but the decisions that Oppo makes on its main camera vex me sometimes, right? You yeah. put that next to a an iPhone or a Samsung or a Pixel and just the colors, the, the HDR, everything about it, just, I'm like, why did you make this decision? Especially if you have your own silicon, you know, influencing the output of the of the of the jpeg um and i can't be bothered to take raws but if i i mean you're you're probably gonna like kick me off the show for saying that but like no, I, 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 I don't, don't want to i don't, don't want have time have for to. that i don't have but time I, for that <laughs> but if i did i would feel like if i was somebody who spent time in lightroom on my phone photos the oppo find x6 pro would be my go-to camera uh for the most part and I just didn't feel that way about the OnePlus 11. I was fine with the photos that I got from it. But like in general, I was I was whelmed. I wasn't underwhelmed, I wasn't over I was just whelmed and it was fine. And that was it, you know? It's I, within context, right? I mean, the Oppo Find X6 Pro, first of all, they never sent me one, so I don't actually have experience using it. I've seen the photos though, and I love them. Um, but mostly because I kind of love the Hasselblad color science. Um, but what I liked about the 11 was that in context for its price, for the first time in a long time, OnePlus had finally delivered a camera experience that I felt was worthy of being called a flagship camera experience. Sure, you're right. That's it. I mean, it, it, I think it's a two, like the fact that it's 2X, that's the wrong decision. So but what they do with that be... 2X is pretty amazing because it's they're doing sensor fusion and zooming, you can zoom up to 10X, no problem with the OnePlus 11 and still have usable results. Try that with a nothing phone too and you don't get it, right? Yeah. Try that with the Pixel 7a and it's actually usable again because of super res zoom. Like mm -hmm. I, I had them side by side and I've been doing comparisons, nothing phone two versus Pixel 7a. And the only thing the camera falls apart on is uh, anything past 5x zoom. Like it's crunchy, but usable up to 5x. Like it degrades rapidly past 2x, but it, at, you know, I would say that the Pixel 7 8 only starts degrading after like 5X, which is kind of surprising, you know, for a much worse sensor. Like, let's face it, that 64 megapixel on the 7A is not that great in the absolute. But the I mean, the IMX363 was, yeah. was a bad sensor three, four years ago. So <laughs> somehow they got the most out of it. So yeah, I'm not surprised the 7A can, can pull off what it can pull off. Yeah. So then, you know, looking at the other things I want to chat about, um, speaking of tensor, uh, tensor and Pixel, well, guess what? Uh, this actually got me very excited because hopefully they don't mess this up, right? Because ever since Tensor came out, I've been vexed. I like that you use that word because I like to use that word a lot too. Tensor vexes me a lot mm -hmm. because I'm a Pixel user. And every time I use a Pixel phone, doesn't matter what it is, if it has a Tensor chip in it, it overheats. Reception is crap. Battery life is crap. I get frustrated. I'm literally holding like a hot mess in my hands. And, you know, I can't help to think, what would it have been like, Daniel? What for a second imagine a world where they used a Snapdragon chip or a MediaTek chip and they put a Tensor NPU in there, like the Merrick Silicon X to do the image processing? Yeah. What if... What if that was happening? Our 5G would be great. Our power consumption would be great. Our phones wouldn't overheat. Why, Google? Why? Of all the chips you could have gone with, did you go with Exynos? Money, I suspect. It, it comes down to cost. I think, you know, maybe, maybe you remove Qualcomm from the conversation and we say, why didn't you go with MediaTek? 
I'm yep. sure it has to do with relationships, right? Largely, uh, Samsung had inventory, it had opportunity, it had scale in a way that MediaTek perhaps didn't. Uh, they maybe didn't work as closely with MediaTek as they do with Samsung, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I no, don't. No, I see the point. I, I but think I think it right. has to do with price. Like, it if, if Qualcomm price, was on that label, the the, the pixels would be a hundred dollars more expensive across yeah. the board. You're right. It's definitely a price and a relationship thing. MediaTek has the capacity. They work with TSMC. Literally, when you go visit MediaTek's office, TSMC's factory is next door. Like that's how tight they are. Like, mm-hmm. trust me, there's no problem here. But it's just uh, I'm so frustrated with it because so this news that just dropped is again a rumor but a rumor that Google's going all in-house like Apple did and this could go very wrong or could go very right but I have a feeling it's very unlikely to go in the middle (laughs) so (laughs) I don't think it, it can go wrong at this point right like you have you have Apple doing the same thing with Qualcomm on the on the baseband side, right? They they worked. I mean, it's it's ironic that the first three generations of iPhone were also Samsung SOCs that were rebranded, and then now we have Google doing the same thing. Um, and I think there's no chance it will be worse. <laughs> it can't be worse. But no, uh, but that's also, that's kind of a low bar, okay? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like it it can't be worse than than a Tensor, um, but. At the same time, when we go back to why did Google partner with Samsung, its scale, its relationship, and it's also the fact that the horizon included this exact rumor that in 2025, they would release the Tensor G5 and it would be their own product. And that seamless transition is what Google is looking for. And I I, I suspect it, it was just like I'm sure they had conversations with MediaTek and Qualcomm for the same thing. My my uh, feeling though is that they will go, they will use a Qualcomm baseband with their own, with with their in-house chip. I cannot imagine Hooray! that Google will use <laughs> a Samsung baseband chip with a custom designed tensor. Like that just to me that doesn't make sense. Right. Um, but well, who knows? Uh, let's see what happens. Speaking of other chips, and since this is a MediaTek-sponsored podcast, I do have to acknowledge that they launched another chip this week. I don't know what to think of this, really, because I don't have Finbar here, who was earlier in the show, to tell me all the great details. But it's a Dimensity 6100 Plus, and it looks to me, with their new naming scheme, that it's essentially a 900 series MediaTek chip. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's the same chip. I'm just saying it's that range of performance. It's a kind of entry-tier 5G chip. Uh, no millimeter wave and you know I expect to see this on cheaper phones from Realme and Redmi and Poco it's going to be great so I'm going to leave a GSM Arena link in the show notes what I want to really talk to you about though is the rumors on that iMac 32 inch because I have a 27 inch iMac Intel still on my desk in my place in San Francisco that I use to work with and Even with lots of RAM, it's getting very, very long in the tooth, and I'm starting to be very cranky about it, and I've been holding back on buying a Mac Mini M2 and a nice LG monitor or something to go with it, but I like the all-in-oneness of it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want Apple to give me a 30-plus-inch iMac with an M3 chip or something, and this is what this rumor is about. What do you think? So I have a... 
24-inch M1 iMac, and it's connected to my favorite monitor of all time, which is the Dell 38-inch ultra-wide. Like it's it's the it's it's basically the one from 2018 that is is just the U series, right? The it's the U series. It cost like three grand when it came out. It was just like it was one of my most indulgent purchases ever. But I wanted an ultra wide that I could just have that like span the entirety of my desk, right? Uh, the iMac sits to my left, and it's it's a good solid PC that I could never use staring at it all day, right? Like the right. monitor is fine, but 24 inches is too small. Um, and 16 gigs of RAM max on that was far too low. I I, right. I am just constantly closing tabs on this machine in a way that I don't have to on on my on my MacBook Pro. I would say that a 32 inch, in my opinion, is is the right size for most people and not nearly big enough for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm I'm disappointed that they're not coming out with like a 32 and like a and a 40 or 42, but whatever. That's not here nor there. I, I agree that this is the right move. Uh, I will be interested to see what resolution the monitor is. Um, you know, there. I think the rumor said that it's a six. No, is it? Yeah, I think it's going it to use six K. It's going to use the the high end monitors panel. Okay, so yeah, it's six K resolution, which is which is fine. That's excellent. that also means micro LED lighting. Um, and HDR support. So that, that seems like it would be really expensive. I'm look yeah, I'm, I'm thinking like $24.99 to start. What do you think? I'm I'm in on that. I'll I'll spend the money. That's that's worth it for me. Uh for I, I could tool. replace my monitor. Like I don't 32 inches is not that much smaller than 38. I just I'll I you get used to ultra wide and it's hard to go back. Yeah, yeah. I'm just bummed that they no longer support display target mode on Macs. Because you can use an old iMac back in the day. You could use an old iMac 27-inch, put it to target display mode, and hook it up to a MacBook Pro or something and have it as a display without having to take it apart and you do anything. And you could just kind of ignore the, the old aging guts of the iMac and use it as a nice 5K display. So they need to bring yeah. that back. You know? Or you could just like put it to the side and you know ignore it. Yeah, or buy something new. <laughs> That's true. This is a great time to wrap up. Do you want to tell folks where they can find you on the internet and what your handle is on various social media? What platforms do you use? So so funny. Uh, when you plugged the show, I got notifications for Threads, Blue Sky, and Twitter. And I was like, this is our new reality. We have- it's Terrible. There's no, <laughs> nobody's everywhere anymore. Uh, I'm on Threads at the moment. I have not used Twitter in months. I don't intend to ever use it again. Uh, if I can help it, uh, I, I'm not on blue sky because I can't be bothered to be on more than one at this point. So I'm there on threads at journey, Dan, which is my handle on Instagram as well. Uh, I don't publish on my websites anymore, but I am, my job title is content director of the tech sites at, uh, Valnet, which means that I, I oversee the publishing of a few sites, including Android police, XDA developers, pocket now and pocket lint. So you can find their great work over on those sites. Don't be so modest. I've seen you write stuff for Android Police recently. Like Not that recently. Sonos review. Come on. Oh yeah, like I wrote one review because I I just love Sonos products. But I, I get to pick and choose my my reviews these days, which is nice. Very nice. So follow Daniel and uh, you know check out the 
stuff occasionally on Android Police. And if you want to follow me, folks, you know where to find me on all the platforms, pretty much. I'm at Tankgirl. That's T-N-K-G-R-L, like the comic book character. Just drop the vowels. And I'm still on Twitter. I'm on Threads. I'm on Blue Sky. I am not on Mastodon. Well, I am, but I don't know what I'm doing there. So don't... I actually have two accounts, it turns out, because I don't understand it. Um, Threads, of course, is new and I'm enjoying it. Uh, Instagram, of course, if you want to see pretty pictures of phones, pretty pictures of cars, of tech, of travel, of food, it's on Instagram. I'm not a big Reels person, so. but if you want good photos, that's the place to go. Of course, the podcast lives at mobiletechpodcast.com. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, everywhere good podcasts can be found. So check that out. And of course, subscribe, tell your friends. If your app lets you rate or review the show, Show, please consider doing that. There's a YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash mobile tech podcast with some unboxings, hands-ons. It's very occasional, maybe once a month or so I put up a video. I've been super busy, so I haven't had a chance to do as much as I used to. But cool, free video content, visual content that goes with the podcast at youtube.com slash mobile tech podcast. You know how YouTube works. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, click the bell, all that good stuff. Comment, comment about the podcast as well. It'd be great. There's a Patreon, folks. If you want to help me out, this is the way to do it. Patreon.com slash tankgirl. That's patreon.com slash T-N-K-G-R-L. What do you get? The biggest perk there is a video version of the podcast that comes out a couple of days in advance. So you get to watch or listen, whatever, because it's YouTube. If you have YouTube Premium, you can put in the background the podcast in advance because it's actually YouTube. Yeah, but it's uh, behind a password. So check it out. Patreon.com slash tankgirl. There's also a cool little discord server you can join if you want to chat so yeah help me out if you can and if you don't like patreon there's a paypal link in the show notes click through buy me a coffee i'll be happy camper consider helping me out i'd appreciate it and also want to thank mediatek for helping me out they're the sponsor of this podcast mediatek powers nearly 2 billion connected devices a year and is a market leader in developing innovative systems on a chip socs for mobile device, home entertainment, connectivity, and IoT products. And Daniel, I want to thank you for being my guest yet again. Thank you so much for having me. So good to have you. This was really fun. Yeah. Good way to end the week. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. You know, we'll have you on at some point in the future. And folks, we'll have another show next week. So stay tuned for that. Until then, cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.